My name is Professor Matthew Simpson, colleagues call me Matt, and I work at Queensland University of Technology, which is in Brisbane, Australia. Lovely. Um, my name is Pam Vibahia. I am a neuroscientist, communicator, and your host for Biology in Numbers, the official podcast for the Society for Mathematical Biology, also lovingly known as the SMB. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. How are you doing? Are you in Brisbane right now? I am uh, in Canberra at the moment, which is um, the capital of Australia. And mm -hmm. uh, it's it's maybe an hour's flight from Brisbane. So I'm in, in the airport lounge at the moment. And hopefully it's quiet enough that you and I can have a chat and not be too interrupted. Yeah, so far so good. I'm actually really glad we managed to find a sliver of time that allowed us to meet, given that I'm on the east coast of the US and you're in Australia. It's so taken a while and I, I'm well aware that the hour of the day is probably easier for me here than for you there. So thank you very much. Oh, not at all. Thankfully, I'm a night owl. So as we said, this is the podcast for the Society for Mathematical Biology. And given your title, I feel like I can guess the answer. But are you team math or are you team bio? I am team math but really I like to hang out with team bio maybe more than I more than some of my colleagues and that's okay I really enjoy uh, hanging out with the biology crowd and learning from them but I'm really a mathematician very good so we're setting a little challenge for all of our guests to see if you can introduce your research in 60 seconds or less 60 seconds or less yes my research is all about connecting experiments, experimental observations with mathematical models. I don't really mind what the experimental observations are. I work with a range of applications in biological sciences, mostly about cell biology. And I'm really interested in how you use data to guide the use of mathematical models and what we can learn by combining mathematical models and data. And I don't know how close I am to 60 seconds there, but I could stop there. <laughs> Very good. I think that was pretty good, actually. So naturally, one of the things that I did before we started our chat was to look you up on Tinterwebs, where you have a very beautiful website. And as a neuroscientist, I got really excited when I saw you mention neural crest cell migration. So this is a very cool part of embryonic development, where we go from being just a ball of cells, right, to ones with a more specific function. And as the name suggests, this is where our cells go to form the nervous system, right? That's right. So that project that you raised there was the very first time I was exposed to mathematical biology. Before I worked on that project, I was a PhD student and I came from civil engineering, Ooh. which was a bit of a leap, but also yeah. once you lift the hood and look under, it's actually very similar. Using models to think about observations and using mathematical models to guide choices is very standard activity for a civil engineer as well as in mathematical biology. But I worked from 2003 to 2009 as a postdoc at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And I worked very closely with an embryologist called Don Newgreen and a well-known mathematical biologist from Australia, Kerry Landman. And I sat in the School of Mathematical Sciences, but Kerry and I would be routinely across in the lab watching our colleagues do what seemed like impossible experiments on quail embryos. So these, you know, thinking about getting a tiny quail egg at a restaurant. Um, of course, that was where the experiment started, but it ended up, you know, diving literally deep inside the egg, which would contain a growing embryo, and then looking deep within that embryo to look at how cells move from the 
hindbrain in that case, so thinking, you know, I'm not an anatomist, but at the bottom of your developing brain, and the population of cells we looked at were going to move into the gut. So they were going to move into the esophagus down in the other direction towards the stomach and the anal end, and their, their job was to populate the developing gut tissues so that eventually, under normal circumstances, the development will give rise to the enteric nervous system. Mm -hmm. And that nervous system is responsible for moving the content through our digestive system. Yeah, very cool. So how was it that you applied math to that problem? That's a good question. We used, I would say we used mathematics qualitatively they generated a lot of data so one of the one of the things that the experiments would do was to try and look at a population of cells in obviously a very very tiny developing embryo and it's difficult to label one cell from another mm -hmm. so they used to do experiments where they would take cells out of a quail embryo and transplant them into cells out of a chick embryo all the other way around because they could use biological labels that were specific to a quail or a chick i can't quite remember it was 20 years ago <laughs> uh, and then kind of look at what happens if you put a small bunch of cells from one system into the other and look at what happens to that small population of labeled cells within the other cells and so we were able to use our reaction diffusion models to do very similar transplant experiments which really is as simple as solving a differential equation and changing the initial condition it certainly didn't involve opening an egg uh, <laughs> and what we were able to do was to really explore how the behavior of cells varied with position in the embryo we were talking about position as kind of down a straight line kind of very simplified geometry so like starting mm -hmm. at the hind brain and ending at the anal end of the development and thinking about what different cell function really dominated at different locations along that axis. And so the types of models that we use, reaction diffusion models, are partial differential equations that, you know, second and third year undergraduate mathematics students learn about. But typically in an undergraduate experience, you wouldn't learn about reaction diffusion models to study embryology. That was part of our research, was to take these experiments, which were novel, to take standard mathematical models and really bring them together so we could learn about the experiments from the models. Very neat. And actually, there's something quite relevant to the lab that I work in, given that we work on the sensory nervous system and I've got sure. colleagues who work on the gut. So you're our guest today, not just because you're a member of SMB, but because specifically you are the editor in chief of its publication, the Bulletin of Mathematical Biology. I'm laughing because I really struggled to say that in the last <laughs> podcast recording. Um, so for our audience members who might not know, can you explain what a scientific journal is? I can try, and um, if I'm not explaining something well, I'm sure you can help me. So as a scientist, uh, when I first started to work in the embryology project, uh, not only were we interested in learning about fundamental biology and mathematical models, but we were also interested in collecting together our best or most insightful results and then publishing them to the wider community. So scientific publishing for us was a means of summarising the key findings from our study into a part of the literature where our colleagues would read that study and the scientific journal is kind of the vehicle at that time, the vehicle to get between the people who were doing the research and maybe people who were interested in the research. Of course, that was 20 years ago and, and now people use other methodology. They might have social media or Twitter or something kind of in parallel with that scientific publishing model. So that yeah. was my view of what the role of the scientific journal. 
Yeah, I think that's a tremendous description. So this is something that people essentially choose to do. So why did you decide to become the editor-in-chief? What's in it for you? That's a good question. I um, This is the first time I've been editor-in-chief of a journal. Most journals have a sole editor-in-chief or a group of editors-in-chief. Before I become involved in the bulletin, I had been involved as a member of the editorial board of other journals, so I knew a little bit about what the editor-in-chief role was. But one of the things, you know, I talked before about that project, it's been 20 years since I've been in mathematical biology and across my career, publishing has been very important. It's been important to connect with other people in our area. It's been important to meet with other people, you know, in a, in a technical sense to join people together. And I know the editor-in-chief has an important role in curating the direction of a journal. Mm -hmm. And I feel that across the last 20 years from when I stepped into mathematical biology to now when I'm acting as editor-in-chief of the Bulletin of Mathematical Biology, there's been enormous numbers of handling editors, editors-in-chief who have taken time to read my work and have taken time to read other people's work and publish those pieces of work. And that's helped me both explicitly, so it's helped me and my students and my colleagues get their work published, which of course in turn in academic career helps our career progression. But it's also helped me implicitly by publishing other people's work who then of course informs our work. So it's an important role and I'm privileged to undertake that role for the bulletin. And I also, I really love the Bulletin of Mathematical Biology. Over the years, I've published in it quite a lot before I was involved as an editor or an editor-in-chief. I love the fact that the bulletin is associated with the society because mm -hmm. for me, as a researcher who's moved between disciplines, it's really important to find people in your community academically. And I see the bulletin in the past having done an excellent job of that for our membership and I'm keen to be part of that to keep that going into the future. So the role of the editor-in-chief is there's a range of activities and some of those activities are day-to-day -day activities some of them are a little you know on a time scale of me acting in this role every few days and on a longer time scale so all of the submissions that come into the Bulletin of Mathematical Biology after they go through some preliminary screening through our wonderful journal manager, Helen Taylor, who is um, just a superstar in helping me and everyone else at the Bulletin keep it going. So after they go through some preliminary screening, all of the articles come to me and go through a preliminary screening by me to see whether they fit the themes and the main topics of the Bulletin. Uh, many do, many don't. And then it's my job maybe to suggest that those that don't, maybe to provide feedback to the authors about what other journals they may consider. But once, you know, a, a submission comes in and I deem that it's within the remit of the bulletin, then I work with our incredibly hardworking group of senior editors and handling editors to put the submission down through the process. So it goes through a process of going through senior editors and then to a handling editor who then may choose to send it out to referees. So that's my job is to funnel these submissions through to the referee process with the help of my fantastic senior editor team and the handling editor team. And of course, when the submissions then go out to review, they take, you know, 
one, two months perhaps to receive expert feedback from the team. The editorial team make a decision then which goes along the chain and I see the decisions and try and integrate everyone's opinions and decisions and then offer a decision back to the author about whether it's acceptable for publication or whether some changes are required. So that's the day-to-day -day activities mm -hmm. of uh, acting as editor-in-chief. That's obviously very important because, you know, how much people read the journal, how the publisher feels about the journal is very important by publishing the right material of sufficient quality and quantity. The longer term activities I'm involved with talking with my editorial team routinely. So we have a pretty lively chat network online just to see what each other's thinking. A bunch of people spread around the world. And I also work with the publications committee with the SMB, chair of which is Ruth Baker, long-term colleague of mine. So we're trying to make sure that the bulletin and the SMB are all pulling in the same direction to get the most out of the relationship for everyone that's involved. And then I'm also involved in talking with the journal staff from Springer, who of course are very interested in how the journal's tracking and whether the services that they provide to us, you know, the online submission service and the promotional services are kind of meeting our needs. So there's short-term activities, which are dealing with submissions and making decisions. And then there's longer-term strategic activities. So that's to do with, you know, maintaining the editorial board, inviting people onto the editorial board and thinking about longer-term strategies for the Bulletin, the Society and Springer as well. So very quickly, can you tell us who Springer are? Springer's the publisher of the Bulletin and a large, well-known publisher within academic publishing. And, you know, if you Google the Bulletin, you'll quickly find yourself probably on the Springer webpage. Uh, and you can see summaries of papers that are published and find links to the editorial board and things like that. So you've given a fairly kind of extensive description of your work. Now, how much does that add to all of the other responsibilities you have as a scientist? And David cheekily asks, does it pay well? Does it pay well? Yes. Well, look, someone along the way, I won't mention who, when I stepped onto the board, um, politely said to me that they had doubled my salary, which gives you an idea about what the salary is. And that's fine. So look, this is, this is a voluntary position. And I see it as part of my role as being an active member of the society. And I must say, before I took on the role, I did talk to my head of school, which is, you know, my head of school is the person I sit down with every year and do my annual performance appraisal, so if things are going well, we won't say much, but if things are not going well, he'll tell me. But I, ma I made sure he supported me in this role, and of course he sees that as a mutually beneficial relationship for everyone involved, where I work at a university, half of our job is research and publishing is an important part of our job. So I'm lucky to work in an institution that explicitly values this role. And it would have been very hard for me to take on this role without my institution recognizing that it would take a chunk of time, but that they value that time as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think are the best and the worst parts of being an editor? The best parts are easy. The best parts are you get to see the best work by the best people very early on when that work is completed. Of course, with preprint servers, then people can often complete a piece of work and publish it very early on, perhaps very, as soon as it's completed. But as a journal editor, you do see really exciting pieces of work coming across your desk from some of the world's best mathematical biologists, as well as some of the world's uh, most exciting emerging mathematical biologists, so tomorrow's leaders. Mm -hmm. And you see all of this coming across your desk and you also, so you get to see a very preliminary version and see how people 
argue why their work is important and how exciting it is. There are other things that are good. Working with my editorial team is fantastic. Interacting with the society through Ruth and others is always a joy. And I, you know, my experience of working with the Bulletin is that the editorial board is very helpful, very collegiate. There's a lot of people around the world giving up their time to make sure that we are doing a very fair and proper job of assessing scientific contributions and it's great to be part of the team that does that look the worst part is there's deadlines okay mm -hmm. so i guess there's a lot of deadlines and luckily we've got a fantastic journal manager helen taylor who works incredibly hard behind the scenes and not that it's a bad part but obviously scientific publishing involves making decisions about accepting or rejecting work people take that very seriously as i said before publishing in in people's scientific career it's a high stakes game you know through the review process people are offered feedback and feedback is often hard to take so people do question editorial decisions and in terms of feedback and that is difficult luckily i've got a big team around me to support us to make sure that we are trying to make the best decisions that we can but obviously it's a decision process and not everyone is always happy at the decision and my interactions with the former editors-in-chief who were also very helpful explained to me that in their experience that was also the worst part of the job but it's something we take very seriously and it's something that we try very hard to get right but it is a decision process and that can be difficult. So going back to the subject of preprints so for folks who don't know, there's uh, papers that can essentially go out and they're not reviewed by other scientists, so not by their peers. Do they not feel a bit like spoilers for you? It's like everything else. It's good and it's bad. So there's an element of a spoiler, right? There's already something out there. Personally, as an author and also as an editor, I think the positives outweigh the negatives. As an editor-in-chief, I see people submitting to the bulletin and they're writing very considered cover letters. People might write a cover letter saying that they've just pre-printed this piece of work that they would like to be considered by the bulletin. And they may in their cover letter even indicate that their pre-print has had, let's say some downloads or it's received some positive comments on the public commenting feature on the pre-print. It might've had a lot of Twitter hits. There are many ways that people can gather evidence from their peers in an open way and that can be helpful in terms of understanding the potential interest in a piece of work so on the whole i think it's positive but i agree with you there's an element of a, a spoiler alert in there but also i, I think for pre-printing for students that are finishing a phd thesis and they've got a period of time scientific publishing can take time and so if you want to show a prospective employer that you've got a piece of high quality work that you'd like them to look at putting it on a pre-print server at least in my opinion i think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages for me yeah, absolutely. I don't think that had occurred to me before, but then I got my PhD a long time ago, so. <laughs> it, it, indeed, I also got my PhD before I knew what a preprint server was. <laughs> yeah. So there are obviously multiple journals where people can submit this kind of research, right? So why would they come to the bulletin as opposed to go somewhere else? That's right. I think the key answer to, to that is the bulletin's history with the Society for Mathematical Biology. The papers that are published within the bulletin are promoted by the society, both within the society through social media, and of course social media goes outside of the society. There's a ready-made audience for the work that's published within the bulletin. 
because of the close relationship with the society. I mean, before my time as editor-in-chief, I was routinely publishing work from my group and with my students and encouraging my students to consider the bulletin. And that was one of the arguments that I would make to them at that point. And of course, when people like me as a scientist or my students think about going to a research meeting, then the annual SMB meeting is a target for us. And so just the relationship, having something published in the bulletin, maybe giving a talk the following year at the SMB meeting means that the right people can see the results. So you hit your target audience straight away. Yeah. So speaking of articles, have you seen a particular one that stood out in your time as editor? So the answer is yes. There's lots of very interesting articles that we see and they're beginning to publish. I mean, I've been in the editor-in-chief role now for 12 months. But maybe the most interesting article I think that caught my eye was perhaps a little bit before my time, which was some work that was published in the bulletin led by John Nardini, who's now at New Jersey Institute. And that was really about using data to connect with partial differential equation models and to learn about partial differential equation models. So to go back to the beginning of our conversation, I said that 20 years ago, we were working in a group. And I think at the time we were doing what many people were doing. We were writing down partial differential equation models that we thought were sensible models of some biological observations. And it turned out that was a completely reasonable thing to do. But of course, many people that read the bulletin or that work within the society will know that when one group of scientists writes down a mathematical model about a biological system, I think that if we asked another group of scientists to separately write down an appropriate model for a biological system, this is where for me biology gets very interesting. They may write down two very different mathematical models. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a challenge. And if I think about my background in civil engineering and people studying let's say fluid mechanics or more established fields where mathematical models are used, this isn't an issue. There's less of a discussion about which model do I use to study a particular system. So what we were doing 20 years ago was writing down models and using models and learning about those mathematical models without perhaps a clear justification from the experiments or a clear mm -hmm. justification from the data about why we use the model. So the work that was published in the bulletin by John Nardini and a large number of co-authors really turned this question on its head. What they were looking at was taking data, so discrete noisy observations, which might be similar to what you face from an experiment, and then using methods from data science and statistics to then use those observations to choose different types of models in a framework called equation learning. So using data to learn equations. And this was the first time that I had seen this method used in a mathematical biology context. It had been used before in biophysics or in physical sciences context. But for me, this just made it so, it's so obvious that we need this in mathematical biology to be guided by data. And so this was a real highlight for me in terms of the recent publications in the bulletin, because I think it's got th that piece of work and the work that's flowed from that has got the ability to change the way we think about mathematical biology and change the way we do mathematical biology from, let's say, 20 years ago. Very neat. It's always fun to listen to people be excited about their field of research, even though I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> sure, sure. So before we let you go, we'd like to learn about Matt the human rather than just Matt the scientist. Um, sure. Yeah, I guess the two are not mutually exclusive, but still. They're not, but they're slightly different, yes. <laughs> so we have a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Now, 
What was the last sporting event you watched? <laughs> it's been a while. Oh. <laughs> so long, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so generally, Nate, what do you Matt watch is, then? Matt is not a, a sports person. Oh. In terms of watching screens, I'm always keeping an eye on current affairs and politics. And in terms of watching performances, I am very keen on classical music. I have subscription tickets to our local symphony orchestra. So that's what I watch. Lovely. Not sports. <laughs> so I'm company with my husband David. I, I cannot remember the last sporting event that I watched. So, what was the last meal you ordered? The last meal I ordered, might have to think about the last time I went to uh, a restaurant, and it was fish. Actually, yeah, it was seafood in a um, in a linguine. Mm, man after my own heart. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> And finally, what's the last book you read? The last book I read was called Political Lives. So Political Lives is a book about Australian politics and not just about politicians, but about biographers of politicians. So it was a series of biographies of biographers. And so that gives away when I said before that I'm often watching current events. That's the kind of book that I would read. And it was an excellent read. Very, very good. So you'd recommend it? I would recommend it, yes. I don't know how that will travel outside of Australia, but um, certainly uh, people in this part of the world will know all about what it was describing. Excellent. Thank you once again, Matt, for your time. This has been an interesting dive into publishing in math biology. Thank you very much. Fantastic to chat with you. And if anyone has questions about publishing within the bulletin, feel free to look me up and I'm happy to chat to people. Absolutely. And we will put all of Matt's contact details into the show notes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Biology in Numbers, a podcast from the Society for Mathematical Biology and produced by me, Pamve Bahia, at Art Science Media. You can learn more about SMB on their website, smb.org, and via social media on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Find links to all of these and some for today's guest in the episode show notes. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and very likely your favorite podcast platform. So show us some love by making sure you review and subscribe. We've got a fantastic journal manager, Helen Taylor, who works incredibly hard behind the scenes. And she helps everyone keep on top of the deadlines. And this is why we booked an hour. We might have to edit out the, um, the, the announcements for flights to Sydney. <laughs>